waiting <clears throat> to see what the first note is going to be. It sounds like a flat C. <laughs> to tune up a little bit. <laughs> So I, um, I got another little nugget of wisdom from the staff dining room this week. Uh, it was uh, something that John Lennon apparently had said about um, himself when he was five years old. Uh, maybe some of you know it. Um, he was, apparently when he was quite young, his mother would often tell him that happiness is the key to life. And she said this frequently, apparently, happiness is the key to life. And so when he was in school, apparently he was given an assignment to write down what, it, what does he want to be when he grows up? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? And he wrote down happiness. And the teacher apparently uh, said, oh, you didn't understand the assignment. (laughs) And five-year-old John Lennon said, I don't think you understand life. Who knows if that happened? (laughs) (laughs) Mm. That is kind of a basic uh, urge that seems to cross time, all times, all places is a basic urge for happiness. Anybody in here not want to be happy? It's okay if you're shy. (laughs) Right, I don't think there's any of us that don't want to be happy. So starting on that theme, I thought I'd try and share a little bit about dukkha, suffering. And in talking with my fellow teachers, uh, kind of what I talk about, I said, I'll talk about dukkha and I'll say dukkha at least five or six times and then I'll make it a dukkha talk. And I think I've just tallied five dukkhas. (laughs) So now I'm free to talk whatever I want to. (laughs) So this basic urge that we have to to be happy is in some ways uh, the parallel or the mirror to a desire to be free of suffering. 
And the Buddha at times said that most of what he talked about, what he taught was basically about suffering and the end of suffering. It wasn't the only things that he talked about. Talked about how to live life well, how to be in relationships wisely, how to rule kindly. But the basic threads and themes of what he was concerned about was how do we spend our time in this life skillfully? How do we live a skillful life? There's different ways that the word dukkha is used by the Buddha. And I remember for a while I was a little bit confused about the different terms because it's, it is, it creates some conflict when we don't really understand uh, this, this word, dukkha. And it, it's often translated as suffering. Um, and yet it really does have a much broader reach than this English word of suffering. One way that dukkha is used is the uh, term around feeling, feeling tones. So we say there's dukkha vedana. Dukkha vedana is unpleasant vedana. And if we think that dukkha is something that we can always bring to an end, then we can have an idea that we'll never experience unpleasant experiences if we're practicing well, if we understand the Dhamma. But dukkha vedana is not something that will cease as a perception in the mind. We might have equanimity around it, but it can still be known as an unpleasant contact. And there's times when the Buddha spoke about his own back pains, where he asked another monk or nun to give the sermon because his body wasn't feeling well. It's helpful to know that that's the nature of this body there's going to be unpleasant experiences. It's amazing that we can actually live a long time without facing that, without owning up to the unpleasantness of the body. Just simple, unpleasant experiences of life. And there's a lot of people in the world, some of them are my relatives, who if you ask, uh, do you suffer? They'll probably say, no, not really. You know, life's good, life's pretty good. And it may be in that moment, you know, things are okay, things are. It's not that life is filled with unpleasant experiences in terms of this feeling tone. There's a teacher in Thailand was, she's no longer here, Ajahn Neb, 
Nayab. Her style of teaching was to really invite people to bump up against this unpleasantness of life. As one of her, I'm not suggesting you do this, but one of her approaches was to encourage people to sit and to not move until it became absolutely necessary. And of course, if you sit, it's gonna become necessary to move. And what that can do is break through this perception that this body is something that is uh, just filled with pleasant experiences that we can control. And a lot of her directions, I was just reading them today, I was looking at that and, and her encouragements were the same around a lot of experiences. So one of them was, again, don't follow this instruction, please. It was don't eat until it becomes absolutely necessary. I don't know if she said absolutely, but until necessary. And again, what the encouragement there was just to recognize that a lot of what we do is to shift, adjust, in some way not feel this life that we're living. And we do this in very small ways but this basically becomes the approach to happiness. If I just shift enough during a sitting, I think I'll be able to really do this meditation thing. I just gotta shift just one more time. Maybe one more. (laughs) All right, one more and then I'll be all set. Here we go. I was just sent an article recently, a couple of days ago, by a writer. He's a blogger, um, Andrew Sullivan, who's a conservative, um, gay political person, pretty well-known figure, comes on TV frequently. And he was talking about all the addictions that we have in life. And for him, it was uh, just in starting up a blog, it began to run his life, how much he was online and checking his phone. And this addiction to uh, do something other than feel what was going on. And he was talking about some experiences that he was having at a retreat center. And this is in the, I think, Atlantic Monthly And as I was reading it, he was then describing all these other people around him who were immersed in the silence of their experience and opening to their own body and mind in ways that no one really gets a chance to in the world because of our addictions. 
The ways are always running, running. And he said that he was there for 10 days and yet everyone around him was actually there for six weeks or three months. And I realized, wow, he was talking about IMS. He said it was a center in central Massachusetts. And so he was here a year ago during the retreat. So this work that we're doing It's really important work. And it seems that the world is starting to catch on a little bit in the West. The Dharma has been rolling for a very long time in other places. And now uh, it seems the time is shifting in the West. We might be reaching our threshold of how much we can do at once. And that this kind of agitation or discontent is prompting a lot of search, a lot of interest. And the Buddha actually said that in response to suffering, the mind responds in two basic ways. Either bewilderment or it searches for an end. And the bewilderment is the delusion, the confusion that I think is what governs how most of us, when we're not practicing, respond. We don't know the way out of suffering. And so we try whatever it is that's within reach. I think there's a Tibetan saying, or one Tibetan teacher describes samsara being in conditioned reality is basically a constant effort to fix the moment. Always fixing this moment. which means we'll never kind of stand naked in the moment and be vulnerable. Always fixing. There's a part of the practice that requires deep trust. Life is not wrong. It's not going in the wrong direction when we suffer. This is the way things are constructed. Meaning that the way things are, conditioned phenomenon coming together that are not permanent, they can't provide a sense of lasting freedom, lasting joy. I was thinking about this idea of life 
I was imagining, what if life were this field of quicksand? And we're born into the world and don't know its nature. What we do then is we're struggling against the conditions of the way life is. And what we do is we make it worse, worse for ourselves because we don't understand the laws of the world. So what the Buddha was trying to do was to say, here's the playbook. Here's how things happen. And when you come to understand that there's a possibility of being free, free of dukkha. So this use of the word dukkha is different than the sense of it, of experiences being unpleasant. And just before I get there, I want to say about the, the other common use of dukkha is the description of it being a universal characteristic is one way it's used. Apparently the uh, more accurate translation of that, of dukkha as a characteristic is really something that we can perceive in our experience. So dukkha becomes a perception of experience. And this is part of the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, that all experiences, all phenomena as they appear to the mind are changing. They're conditioned, constructed. And because they're conditioned, there's no solid, permanent element to it. In this way, the word dukkha, when we say all sankhara, all conditioned phenomenon are dukkha, the translation that really works there is to say that all conditioned phenomenon are unsatisfactory. Because we can really feel how that any experience can't satisfy the mind, can't bring lasting satisfaction. Tonight, as I was just walking outside and feeling the night air and standing there, I was remembering some of the really gorgeous sunsets that I enjoyed on the three-month retreat a few years ago and I was sitting here. And the experience of that is really joyful at that time. It's really joyful. And the thing is, I've definitely suffered a few times in the intervening three years at least four or five times. (laughs) (laughs) So it's so fleeting, this kind of contact and and joy that we get from experience. And it's important really to understand why all sankhara are dukkha. When we see that even joyful experiences, even pleasant 
experiences can't do it. They'll never do it. And what often happens is because it feels like the familiar route to go down, if I am able to get the next pleasant experience to happen, or if I'm able to get rid of the current unpleasant experience, if that becomes the approach, once we know the mind, what we really see is because the mind is getting conditioned, every time we make that movement of trying to get, trying to get rid of, the mind falls into that habit more and more. So we spend a lifetime kind of digging this groove in the mind of craving, aversion, and being basically deluded by experience. Once we see that so clearly that any craving that I reach for even though there is that sense of gratification, it just becomes a slightly strengthened habit that we condition to arise again. Craving arises again, or aversion rises again. So what's the way out? So luckily the Buddha didn't stop at the first noble truth. It would have been absolutely tragic had he passed away (laughs) right after saying the first noble truth. (laughs) There is suffering. (laughs) Who knows, that may have been enough of a hint of what to do. And with suffering, he says, it's to be understood. It's to be understood. And I can hear that so many times. It's to be understood. It's to be understood. And then I sit down and I feel some suffering and I try and figure out how to get rid of it. (laughs) It's to be understood. So, right. I'm sure it is. So he articulated a pretty clear uh, process of how this sense of suffering both arises, and this is the suffering that uh, does have a sense of stress to it, of there not being a complete feeling of peace in the mind. I just so appreciate that the Buddha spoke about this so clearly and directly. You know, he didn't um, hold back in what he was seeing. He really treated us like adults, those that he was with and all future 
people. He was saying, this suffering is something that can come to an end, but you need to do the work. And the suffering that we can do the work on are habits of mind that we ourselves are unknowingly, sometimes knowingly, acting out. And these are just habits of mind, part of the way the mind's been conditioned. But because the mind has been conditioned in this way, there's a way out. Suffering isn't then a description of the world, of life. And oftentimes kind of the shallow reading of the Dharma is that it's a very pessimistic uh, teaching. And yet the Dharma is reality. It's just what's real. And the wonderful teaching actually says, suffering is optional. Because it's a habit of mind, because it's a stance that the mind takes in response to experience, when that stance isn't being taken, the experience of suffering doesn't arise. And this is what we have a chance to do here because of the space and time, we're able to use what arises as a guide into our experience. There is a real turning point in my practice when the Four Noble Truths really became alive for my mind. It was so clear that the mind was suffering And once I saw very clearly that it had a cause, suffering became this invitation to be free. Anytime I felt some disease, agitation, difficult emotion I didn't like, It's like I knew where to look. As we have this confidence growing of where it is that we need to look in experience to understand the Dhamma, the practice really does become a support, an ally. I'm feeling a little uncertain, not sure, feel lonely. 
something doesn't feel quite right, fixing the moment. What's the cause? When we really learn how to use what's arising in our experience as our teacher, as the teaching, the Dhamma really becomes alive. It's not some theoretical possibility, letting go, allowing. It's not like we have to wait for that. And we have tastes of this all the time. A lot of teachers talk about experiencing this sense of freedom, many, many moments, small ways. We don't have to wait for the big explosive kind of orgasm of, of Nibbana. I think that's what the descriptor the Buddha used. <laughs> Huge explosion, an orgasm of Nibbana. Um, so, you know, it's like we're waiting sometimes for the big thing. And yet to really understand what it feels like, even a little bit of, oh, the mind settled back a little bit, or it opened to this unpleasant emotion, or that pain in the body, the attitude shifted just a little bit. And there's a small taste of this sense of being okay, okay with this flow of experience. Somewhere along the line in my life, 
I developed a very strong phobia of public speaking. It's funny how life works out. Funny, it flares up once in a while, the kind of uh, racing heart. It's not happening right now. But it happened on Thursday morning when I was about to give the instructions. I waited for about three minutes. I don't know if you noticed. (laughs) What's so cool about facing experience the way it presents itself is that it it really doesn't matter uh, what is happening for us. So the, it's like the interest is no longer in getting the right experience, but taking interest to be there with it learn from it. When I was um, a monk in, in Burma, it was my, a time when my practice was kind of, I felt like it was taking off. And uh, I've shared this story before. I was so excited by kind of the phenomenon that were happening and my mind and at one point I thought I was levitating in my room. <laughs> I don't think I was, <laughs> but it felt like it. And, and all these just this cool experiences and you know, the Dharma talks about these things that happen. And I, I went into, I was so excited to tell, uh, my teacher, Sado Tejaniya, uh, kind of report to him about my practice. So of course that's a total setup. <laughs> and uh, you know, I went in and, and um, you know, just sort of gradually built up the story, you know, to, to how things were unfolding and, and uh, amazing you know, without revealing it, but how amazing a meditator I was. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if he rolled his eyes. <laughs> Basically rolled his eyes, though. And, uh, and, you know, he just looked at me and said, so? And? And my feelings were devastated. Uh, And I really did, I didn't, uh, I avoided the interviews for a month and I was really upset with him for not understanding uh, kind of the depth of my practice and appreciating (laughs) kind of how skillful I am in the Dharma and kind of what a gift I am to the Dharma. (laughs) 
my, my Pali name was Dhammapiya, which means kind of dear, precious. I felt like, don't you, I'm Dhammapiya, like I'm precious to the Dhamma. <laughs> so it was the right timing. Something happened for me at that time also where I, it's just the, the view of what it is I'm doing in practice where I was still in some ways chasing experiences, but that was the habit in the world. And so I was still chasing good, spiritual, pleasant, whatever it is, experiences in the Dhamma. And that helped me to really reorient what it is that the path is pointing to, this cultivation, this learning from what's immediate. Immediate, here and now. These wonderful descriptors of the Dhamma that say, come and see, come and see for yourself. It's here and now, available, timeless. And it's not as if some other experience is what's the Dhamma. Trusting in, listening to what's here. Uh, I like to think that everything that we need to come to understand is available to us in the present moment. And the reason why that is the case is not because the universe is aligning things so that we are getting exactly what we need, but every experience reveals the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, how it responds. And so if we learn how to listen and be okay with what's going on, it's not gonna be a pleasant ride. We're gonna have to see the habits that are there. They're just habits. It's just nature. Someone was telling me today and check in this phrase, it's just nature, is an amazing support to the practice. It's just nature. It helps them to not get entangled or personalize experience and opens the heart. If things are just nature, how do I, how do I be with experience? And be with it. We can open to it. If I'm bad for having dirty thoughts, like Annie does apparently. (laughs) That was from her own talk, I didn't make that up. She said it. It actually reminded me that, uh, it's like when I would get closer to my 
my teacher, and this is just the way, I don't know, it's the way purification works or something. All of these crazy thoughts would come into the mind. And I thought, for sure I'm breaking a precept. Like, I shouldn't be having these thoughts. Like, I'm, I'm right in front of him. He probably can read my mind. And, <laughs> and again, that's just the mind. It's purification, things coming up, being seen, allowing. No problem. So rather than trying to tie a nice bow on this (laughs) C-flat talk, (laughs) let's just uh, spend a few moments sitting together. Thank you for your attention and for your practice. Maybe see you at the chanting. If not, get some good rest.
Oh, I had an Ajahn Chah quote to read, but maybe I'll read it as a closing. Let's see if I find it. There is difficulty in practice, but in anything we undertake, we have to pass through difficulty to reach ease. In Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. It's similar to the way we don't like to look at old people, but prefer to look at those who are young. If we don't want to look at dukkha, we will never understand dukkha, no matter how many births we go through. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. Working at it day after day, we can get through. When we encounter problems, we develop wisdom like this. Without seeing dukkha, we don't really look into and resolve our problems. We just pass them by indifferently. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.